Greetings, I'm Josh Tyson, co-author of the first best-selling book about conversational AI, Age of Invisible Machines. The book explores the learnings of 20-year conversational AI veteran and OneReach.ai CEO, Rob Wilson. Each week, Rob and I bring in a guest to continue the conversation we started in the pages of our book. This week on the Invisible Machines podcast, we're talking about the fractal nature of the many, many predictions our brains make from moment to moment. How your brain's ability to construct abstractions feeds creativity. How AI models are already mirroring aspects of human brain development. And why we need contrarians in the mix when designing experiences using conversational AI. Our guest is famed psychologist and neuroscientist Lisa Feldman Barrett. Lisa is the author of the best-selling book, Seven and a Half Lessons About the Brain, and her groundbreaking research puts her among the top 0.1% of most cited scientists in the world. A contrarian by nature, her work has debunked concepts like lizard brain and painted a new and accessible schema for brain development and function. Lisa holds appointments at Harvard Medical School and Massachusetts General Hospital, where she is Chief Science Officer for the Center for Law, Brain, and Behavior. She is also a distinguished professor of psychology at Northeastern University. Rob and I were thrilled to have this opportunity to pick her brain, as it were. So enjoy this conversation with the incomparable Lisa Feldman Barrett. Well, Lisa, welcome to the podcast. We are certainly very excited to have you here today. I'm delighted to be here. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Rob and I yesterday had quite a long conversation uh, about the many things that we want to speak with you about. But one thing that kept coming up is this idea of movement and progress and how it feels like our brains are hardwired to almost crave this this sense of forward momentum and progression. And now we're in a moment where technology seems to have sped everything up significantly. And so we're calling into the question kind of the, the quality of the movement and if the movement is beneficial to our overall well-being and health. And as happens often, it led to us talking about skateboarding. And on a skateboard, if you, <laughs> if you, uh, if you roll down a steep hill on a skateboard, uh, we call it bombing hills, uh, it, it is incredibly exhilarating. It's probably one of the most uh, satisfying feelings of forward motion I can imagine. But you do hit a point. Uh, they're called the, it's called the speed wobbles where it feels like you're standing on a tight rope and someone just started wiggling it where the, the skateboard veers to and fro. And if you if you go rigid and fight it, you will most certainly uh, hit the pavement. But if you kind of uh, let go, you can you can coast through. So I guess, you know, the, the question kind of layered in there is is how from a neurological standpoint, like how important is progress and forward motion? And are, are we looking at it the wrong way? And are we kind of headed for a for a for an epic bail? No, I think it's there are two things about your question that make that are interesting to me. One is that if we don't take it metaphorically and we take it actually literally, there is actually something about um, forward motion and going quickly that is exhilarating. Uh, you know, so for example, I have a colleague, a friend named Barb Finley, who's an evolutionary biologist, and she pointed out that. You know, when you're on a move walk, a moving walkway, you know, like at the, you know, airport or something, and um, and you're walking on the moving walkway, you go faster than um, yeah, 
yeah, it's really fun, right? And then, uh-huh. but then when you get off, you, you sort of have this like jolt, um, right? And so metaphorically, oh, so, I'm sorry, not metaphorically, but so so concretely, there is something actually about forward movement that I don't know if it's universal, but certainly a lot of people like. And speaking of somebody, I don't skateboard, but I do actually like to drive fast cars. I don't actually mm-hmm. always get to drive <laughs> cars as fast as I would like, but sometimes I do, and I love it. Um, um, but metaphorically, I'm not sure that people crave forward motion. From, an, from the brain's perspective, what the brain... What a brain is attempting to do is always predict what's going to happen next. And things are much more metabolically efficient if you predict well. So that's partly what happens when you, um, you know, step off that moving walkway. It's that you're, you've just had a jolt to your predictions, right? Or, um, you know, when you exercise, when you do anything and you practice, you get more efficient at it. Um, and then you you get smoother at it, right? So if you play tennis or I'm sure if you um, skateboard or, you know, when you're exercising to become better at something like running a shorter mile or more efficient mile or something like that, you just want to practice again and again and again and again. Right. It's really different than, let's say, if you're trying to like condition or lose weight or something when you exercise, then you want something like interval training where people are constantly calling out something new and you can't predict and that's like less uh, yeah. metabolically efficient. Uh, what? Let me just say one other thing, and and just I know I'm blabbing on, but I just no, want to no, say go. that. So, I think that there's an optimum amount of novelty that people like, where, when something is novel, your brain releases chemicals that cause you to feel more alert and and um, more worked up, and that can be pleasant or under pleasant you can feel like you know you can conjure anxiety out of it or 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 energy to you know feeling energetic depending on how you make sense of it but that's true for most things except when it comes to other humans when it Mm. comes to other humans we like everything to be the same you know people select themselves into situations where there's a lot of sameness and they don't like not being, they don't like novelty when it comes to, uh, you know, we, we like novelty in almost everything except each other. Is it, I'm going to try to oversimplify this and call me out on it for sure. Um, is it, is forward motion then like our ability to fool our brains into forward motion when it's not physically happening? Is that, could that just be like, we predict the next thing and then we can't wait to see if we're right. And then we predict the next thing and then we can't see. And that's motion, like predict the next thing. Then we can't wait to see, anticipate. Are we right? Find out. Maybe it could be, it could be. But, you know, humans like other animals are kind of, we we do something called niche construction. That's a fancy word for meeting. We act on our environment to try to make things true. (laughs) Okay. No, we add to the, we add to the world. We add to reality. We do it a lot of different ways. Um, so people are constantly selecting themselves into and out of situations to optimize their predictions, right? Got it. Um, and also people will, brains will, for a number of reasons, when there's error in your prediction, sometimes a brain just doesn't take it in and you just go with the prediction. That's what you do and that's what you experience. You see what you what you want to see. Yeah, more well, uh, than you might think. Yeah. Uh, what What is happening when we're wrong? What is, like, what is... What is going on in our like? We're, we predict we're wrong. We predict we're wrong. What is what is happening in our brains 
if, well, if, if we're not deceiving ourselves, if we're, you know. Yeah, if, so brain's working the way, yeah. yeah. So when I say predict, I mean literally like, what does your heart have to do in the next moment? Where does the glucose have to be? Right. How much oxygen do you need? Um, you know, if you're about to, if you're sitting and you're about to stand up, your brain starts to raise your blood pressure as you, as it stands you up so that you, so that there's oxygen in your, you know, it gets enough oxygen so that by the time you're standing, you don't faint. So I'm not talking necessarily about like lofty predictions at like who's going to win the Super Bowl or whatever, but I'm talking right. about like moment to moment predictions for running a body and it's the brain is predicting what it needs to do next and also what the sensory consequences will be. So so simply like, well, the last time I moved in this way, what did I hear? What did I see? What did I smell? What did I feel? That's how experience is constructed. Um, and what happens um, when you fail to predict properly um, so say like you're in an, an environment that's really new or you encounter something that was unexpected. Um, your brain will attempt to use bits and pieces of past experience and put them together kind of like in novel ways, which is called conceptual combination. So try to take, take what you know, combine it in a new way. If that doesn't work, it's going to attempt to learn the prediction error. And in fact, that's what, you know, in psychology... The fancy name we take, we give to taking in prediction error is learning. That's what learning <laughs> right, is. Right, right. Creating new prediction algorithms. Yeah, basically. And so the brain will adjust to that new information and learn it so that it can predict better next time. Interesting. And is there a penalty? Is there some sort of chemical penalty for being wrong? You bet. So it's not so much a chemical penalty. It's like... um. It's a there's a metabolic penalty and it's and the, because like the most expensive is it caloric then essentially no it's efficiency um, okay. it's really about a fit well efficiency can actually depending on where the inefficiency is it can right. be a penalty of caloric nature so for example if you um, this is a well, this finding that I'm I'm sorry I'm just gonna throw findings at you sometimes yeah please that's do. how please I, do. I actually talk this way to people in my everyday life which you could imagine <laughs> you know um it sort of makes it fun at a dinner party for a little while uh you know but um people think you're fun and then their eyes start to roll back in their heads um you know no, like, i don't know what you're talking about i've never experienced that <laughs> <laughs> so for it's only my whole life <laughs> <laughs> for example if you um so stress is just a moment where your brain is predicting that you have a big metabolic outlay that's about to happen. And so it will direct um, organs in your body to release cortisol um, so that um, the cor cortisol is not a stress hormone. It's a hormone that just helps your cells metabolize glucose faster. Okay. So um, it tells your adrenal glands to secrete cortisol. You get a flush of cortisol. Um, that's really all stress is. Um, it, and um, there's a longer story there about when stress is good and when it's not so good. But the interesting thing, a sort of interesting uh, if you're a scientist and it's kind of horrifying uh, when you're thinking about it as a person, if you're same. stressed two, within two hours of eating, like especially if that stress comes from a social source, 
you, it's your your metabolism becomes inefficient to the tune of 104 calories. So it's as if you ate 104 calories more than you actually ate. Wow. Which over a year of three meals a day is like something like 11 pounds. So if you're, you know, reading the newspaper while you eat breakfast <laughs> every day, you're basically risking, you know, a good three to four pounds if you did nothing different and you, you know, wow. yeah. So yes, there is a metabolic cost. Wow. And the two hours and when you're eating three meals and snacking seems like all day. Well, yeah. I mean, this, the research didn't actually take account of snacking. So, um, but you know, if you're like a lot of people, you'll be, you know, reading your, I, I don't know if people read email anymore. I'm an, I'm an ancient person. So I still, <laughs> you know, I gave up the papyrus and now I just read email. I, but I mean, like, I don't, you know, but if, you, if you're on social media or you're texting or you're slacking or whatever people do while you're eating, <laughs> you know, but the point is that, that I was going to make is that the most expensive things you can do metabolically speaking, are move, move your body, you know, like drag your ass out of bed in the morning. That's expensive. Um, learn something new because learning involves growing little nubs on your, you know, it, it involves thickening your myelin in your, in your brain and growing little nubs on the dendrites of, you know, the little branches on, on, on the neurons and, uh, uh, and so on and so forth. So it, there's a, you know, learning is a, is a physical process. And also um, dealing with persistent uncertainty where the brain can't narrow down its predictions, that turns out to be um, exhausting. And the reason why it's exhausting is because it's actually metabolically, it's a little more metabolically demanding to do that. Mm. And if you do that over the long run, it's like adding a slight drag to the system, which over the longer term, you know, adds up. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. So in a lot of ways, it, it, everything's just simpler than we think it is, but then almost like fractals, it's, they become complex when you compound all of these things into, you know, looking at our calendars and you're like, wow, like at, at some point our calendars can chain all the way back to metabolic movements. Um, but the calendar is so much more complex and yeah, the movements see, are so much, are like these raw parts. So it's so interesting that you say that to me because, you know, I just got finished writing a paper. Um, it's a philosophy of science paper. So, you know, I'm pretending actually to be a philosopher. <laughs> and one of the points that I was making is that knowledge is always some kind of simplification. Like, so everything is... You know, if you think about, like, one way to think about what a brain is doing is it's a signal processor. And it's not modeling the world. It's modeling the sensory surfaces of your body. So that's the only way that the brain knows the world is through the sensory surfaces of your body. And your brain has sensory surfaces everywhere for signals that derive from the world, but also that signals derive from inside your body. That's how your right. brain is your brain models basically also the sensory state of your body according to the surface, the signals that it gets, right, from the surface. Right. 
And so there's a lot of complexity there. And what the brain is doing is it's constraining that complexity using signals from that it reconstitutes from the past. That's what we call memory. So every all knowledge is the is simplification to some extent. But right. if you simplify too much, then you have what philosophers call a theoretical kind. It's like a fiction that doesn't really work in the real world. Right. But you can't have complete complexity. So it's always like finding that sweet spot between right. complexity and simplification. And Curation. that's what I heard right. you that's what I heard you <laughs> talking about. Just yeah, there. yeah, it's the yeah, at, at, to related to art, it's like abstract art, realistic uh, art. And yeah. Oh, and in fact, in. actually, it's so cool that you say that because that's what some people call signal compression in the brain. They call it abstraction. <laughs> right, mm. right, which makes yeah. sense. And, yeah. and then with abstraction, you get to everybody sees something different. And exactly. you get to construct your own version of it, which is creativity, yeah. right? Isn't that exactly, exactly? It's creativity, but it's also things like, um, like there are a lot of features of experience that are abstractions. And I, what I mean by that is they're multimodal, they're lower dimensional multimodal compressions of that larger signal ensemble. So right. the interesting thing that you're doing is you're saying, okay, well. All these things which have different sensory motor patterns, they all are similar in this abstract way. And so it lets you kind of, right? So that's how, you know, um, things that don't sound the same or feel the same or smell the same can have the same function, right? So this is how, you know, um, little pieces of paper can be currency and traded for material goods. Right. But at another time right. it was diamonds and another time it was salt and another time it was big rocks in the ocean. Right. Um, so um, it's also how language works. Language is uh, about abstraction as well. I mean, b basically we're doing abstraction all the time. Right. And you're exactly right. It gives you much more flexibility, um, which, you know, is a feature or a bug. D depending on how much it screws with communication right. with other yeah. people. Like if you're a politician, it's a feature uh, yeah. because you can say 10 different things to 10 different people and and each one agree with you because they basically add their own meanings to it. I, I've heard it be uh, compared to you know some politicians being more high fidelity, others being more low fidelity, and that low fidelity being more likable. And um, I was as sort of relating that back to um, uh, to Marshall McLuhan's kind of thinking around media and fidelity yeah. and likability that the more we kind of get to impose our own um, ideas uh, onto something, the more of our own creativity is exercised, the more likable. Sure, but in politics, uh, that there there are dangers there, right? And um, I mean, I, <laughs> manipulation I heard, and yeah, yeah. I well, I heard um, I heard a really interesting analysis by Ezra Klein. Um, maybe I read it in one of his columns. I can't remember, but it was definitely him. He was talking about um, how Republicans, some well, I guess people who like Trump and people who don't like Trump, and he was saying that. The people who like him think he's speaking metaphorically, and the people who don't like him think he's speaking concretely. Right. And I thought, that's a I've really- I've heard that, yeah. It's a really interesting analysis, and it made me wonder how much that's a general principle, meaning that, um, you know, when someone is speaking simply, 
there's a lot that you have a lot more opportunity, as you said, to sort of add your own context, right. add your, uh, infuse it with your own meaning. And it made me wonder, um, you know, how much is it a, how much is this a general principle really? Right. Because, because on the other hand, when things are really, um, when there's not a lot of context, there's a lot of opportunity to be wrong. And right. that's what makes communication across, um, you know, like, uh, texting or where it's words only and you don't have any other signals, you know, there's a, there's like more opportunity for um, miscommunication. Yeah. Hmm. I wonder, like it, it connecting the two things, our prediction machines and our desire to manipulate the information to be right and low fidelity in politicians, right? It's, um, they give us the opportunity to predict, to m modify our predictions and convince ourselves we were right. Um, and I, I just can't help but think, does anyone really care what he really thinks? Well, uh, I think so. Because I think yeah. that um, a president, you know... I mean, we should we don't, care. We don't, we don't we need to get care. too political, but, <laughs> but presidents um, do... Um, ha they do influence the outcomes of people. Yeah. <laughs> it just sometimes takes a while... Uh, for it to manifest, but, um, but I, I don't know. I mean, I think it's probably just more complicated than that. I, yeah. Um, probably, you know, in a hundred years, if humanity is still around, people will be analyzing this period, time period, you know, yeah. um, trying to figure out what the hell happened. Yeah. What, yeah. What was going on with our prediction machines at that time? Um, what, uh, I, I, so to kind of this is a question I was I've been dying to ask you. Um, I again might be an oversimplification, but um, there was a time where we thought, like you said, papyrus. So I'll go there and say, like, <laughs> oh, that's the end of our memories, the invention of papyrus, right? That's the you know that we won't we won't be able to remember things anymore now that we have this way of storing information ex externally to our brain. Um, and and now we have like phones. We don't memorize phone numbers and blah blah blah. So we have this device now that augments our brain uh, in form of memory. And I can't help but think AI is now like um, the sort of prediction machine of calculators. And um, and it if it starts doing our predictions for us, if we start depending on it to do our predictions, um, uh, what? What does that look like? A world where, where now we we don't trust our own predictions. We start depending externally for those. Is that even possible? I like is does that just take the meaning of life away and why we live, or, or is it possible that we just start to lean on machines to do our predictions for us, and therefore it sort of dictates how we feel? So, I usually resist making predictions about humanity <laughs> what's going to happen in the long run because I don't know I, I, I don't really know but I could probably argue it either way honestly and I think in general my feeling about technology and tools whether they're conceptual or whether they're you know um, um, technological is it, there's no there's nothing inherently wrong 
with a concept or a tool or, or technology. It's all in how you use it, right? right? So there are better ways and worse ways to, to use tools, I think. Um, so I think about, I'm not thinking about AI here, but I am thinking about like the internet, for example. And I think, well, I was just saying this to my husband recently that I don't think I could have written any of my books if I didn't have the internet because I'm integrating across probably six or seven disciplines at the same time that I have to hold things in working memory. Um, so I wanted to write, I wanted to work in the space of philosophy of science most recently. And so I had to basically learn it in like six months, like learn the space. I'm not, I'm not saying I'm an expert by any means. I'm not a philosopher, but, but I've done this with, you know, I started as a clinical psychologist and then I retrained, as, you know, in social psychology and then in physiology and then in neuroscience and, and then in evolutionary biology. And of course, I always had an engineering a little bit and I had help from colleagues, but I also was able to order a book and get it here in 24 hours. I, I, I was able to, you know, sample um, a lot of different material really quickly and hold it all in mind while I'm integrating it. I don't think that would have been possible without technology. Um, that being said, I also don't memorize phone numbers <laughs> anymore. So it's possible that what, what we're doing is freeing up mundane, you know, like there's only so much space up there in your brain. And some scientists think that that's what forgetting, you know, forgetting happens because even though it's we've got a lot of space, we don't have infinite space. And so it's possible that we're just trading out certain functions for other functions, you right. know, that will let us do really yeah. complicated things. I think with AI, with generative AI, the question is really, is an algorithm that is not embodied and doesn't have to concern itself with the kinds of um, challenges that a human brain must concern itself with, is it going to make the same kinds of generative leaps that a human brain would? And then the second piece of that is, if we if we invest AI with more the outcomes with or the decisions with more confidence, mm -hmm. so we tend to people tend to believe that machines can do a better job of a lot of things than humans can, and so they're more willing to trust, right? So scientists believe that if you use, you know, deep learning or some other kind of you know representational learning or any kind of like really sophisticated algorithm that you're going to be able to see things, pull things out of your data that you wouldn't, you yourself wouldn't be able to do. That's actually not true. Right. Um, you're, you're, you're always limited by the data you collect. And if you uh -huh. collect shitty data, that's, you know, there's not, there's no AI is going to save you from, from, right. you know, the theory ladenness of your own data. So I guess I just think it's not that maybe, I'm not really answering your question because I just don't know. I think it just depends on how how these factors get weighed. I think the thing that would concern me the most is that people believe in well, two things. People believe, I think that 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 technology can do a better job of some things that 
it's not really clear that we should be investing technology yeah. with that kind of confidence. And the second thing is that no matter how fancy your algorithm is, it's only as good as the questions you ask with it and right. the data that you feed it. And if those things are full of of theory ladenness, if they're constrained in ways by your own biases, you you're it's you're never going to be able to. It's all it's going to do is is right. enhance those biases, not going to protect you from them. Yeah, I think you did answer my question because I think fundamentally it's well, if machines start taking on some of the predictions that our brain is currently doing, we'll just find new things to predict, and. Well, that's I how think, we're structured. It's structured yeah, to do that, like you know. We just, so. Otherwise, we're yeah. comatose. Like, otherwise, <laughs> otherwise, we're just, you know, not doing anything. And and so, and whether those new things we predict are better or worse, maybe it's not a qualitative thing. It's just different. And that's it. We'll find other things to predict. And, and we'll never get tired of predicting and guessing and then finding out if we're right or wrong. Like, we're not going to offload that because that's fun when we say well i'm gonna roll a one and you roll the dice and it's a one and we all celebrate you know and we all go why are we celebrating like what just happened why is this why is this so exciting um uh, you know the fact that a machine could have predicted that for us um who cares we're still gonna roll the dice and we're still gonna make those guesses and we're still gonna celebrate when we're right uh and so it's irrelevant you know whether it starts making more predictions for us, but maybe it does help us make better predictions on the things that matter. Or maybe it makes us think they're better. Or it makes not. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like it gives us more confidence. So you you can't do anything other than predict because your brain is structured that way to work that way. Um, that being said, you know, if you don't make a prediction, then you're experientially blind. What you're experiencing is noise. The signals are just noise to you. So predictions are required for you to have any kind of meaningful experience of something just because of how the neurons are structured and how they talk to each other. Um, but you can, but there are skills, I guess, that you, um, that you, Hone in learning to predict in particular ways, maybe. So, for example, with our students, right, we've told them you can't use AI to help you write. And the reason why that's the case is that good writing is really fundamentally good thinking. Right. And if you can't reason well, you're never going to write well. Right. Um, and we really want to train them how to think, you know, that's the goal, right? Um, and um, that's a that's a way of, I mean, to write well, you have to be predicting, you have to have a theory of mind and you have to be predicting how your reader is going to digest what you've said what, or what you've written. It's it, Good writing is all about theory of mind for your audience. Yeah. Um, What's interesting to me about what you said too is like, you know, we're all old enough to remember when if you wanted to use a computer, you had to go to a special room in a special <laughs> building. <laughs> the computer But now, department. now we're like, we're yeah. sharing the world with a generation who will grow up having the experience of just being able to converse with machines in any room of the house. Yeah. And I think, you know, a lot of the things that we look at in terms of like how you could leverage AI in productivity settings focuses on finding ways to predict what people want before they actually even know it, right? Like come look through all the customer data so you already know why they're calling and you can present them with 
options and they can be on their way. But on a long enough timeline, does that corrupt kind of what you're talking about? Like without even meaning to ruin thinking, like if, if we have machines doing so much of the predicting for us, I mean, obviously like biological predictions will, will still need to take place within our bodies, but are, are we going to, I think maybe you described like fronds of the brain being pruned. Are we going to start pruning away parts of our brain that we, that might not come back? Maybe. That, yes, that that definitely be possible. But you know what what comes to my mind, what came to my mind when you just said that was, you know what? I think maybe there's a room for like oppositionality. Like I I'm the kind of person who doesn't ever like to be told what to do by. I can't even follow a recipe, man. Like I yeah, have so, trouble. So, 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 but, you know, I'm the same way. Yeah. I mean, so I I once read um, I read a, I read a series of papers that talked about um, the you know what's the what are the biological differences of innovators? And I tend to be very um, skeptical of these kinds of like questions because um, there's not like one magic pill. But I then I think of myself and I think, well, it's not that I'm, I'm not really, I'm not really objecting all the time. I'm well. My mother might disagree with that, but <laughs> um, but um, but what I am is always questioning, right? Like I don't like to take people's words for it. In general, this is just me, and so I think they're probably what what will happen would be maybe that certain attitudes towards the world. I'm trying not to say personality traits because traits don't exist like that, but people who are more willing to question authority, maybe or we're willing not to take somebody else's word for it or or whatever um there it may be it may fall to people like that to not let that ha to not that let that happen i don't know that's a completely Ugh. speculative idea yeah but. being right being right about things that most people are wrong about is very fun um i, I was i i couldn't help but think that you a lot of what you say is uh challenges a lot of the things that people don't even question like lizard brain left brain right brain like all of this stuff that we don't it, it's so ingrained in our thinking that we don't even we don't even question that it's a fact we just it's almost like like it's 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 unquestionable it's a thing that that must exist and then you're I, i'm i find it fascinating at how many of those things are not true and how fun that must be for you and then um, also, though, so many things that are age old and assumed how much a lot of the things you find support those things and both being really fun to go. It's really fun to refute things that we all have just assumed are true, but it's also really fun to explain and support things that are true that we've always thought are true. And I'm just so surprised at how many of those things you get to do. <laughs> well, <laughs> You know, but I think that um, one of the things that I love the most, I really gravitate to, is actually places where I'm wrong about something. So I, I just think, like when I learned that neurons, so neurons, the way neuron is structured, this just totally blew my mind. Okay, so the way the neuron is structured, just a little, little bit of a simplification, but you know, you've got these like branchy parts at the top, which are called dendrites with the little nubs, and they've you know, they got receptors and they receive chemicals from other neurons. And then um, you, the dendrites feed into the body of the neuron. And then, you know, there's uh, an axon um, where, where there are electrical action potentials that, that's, that 
um, fire and then they fire down to the end and then the that neuron releases chemicals for some other set of neurons to, then that's how neural propagation works so that's simplification but it's generally the case so it turns out that the the little the little receptors on the dendrites are not when you're learning something it's because um they're constantly forming like randomly they randomly form and then if they are reinforced they stay otherwise they um, they 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 uh, are reabsorbed so, so it's, it's not it's like, like it's like evolution in a way well, it's even more. I mean, it's like random foraging. It's, like, it's right. like these little cells are like randomly foraging for connections. And it's not, they're not waiting to receive prediction error or something new and then they grow. They're constantly growing randomly. Got it. Okay. It's just like, you know, there are certain brains have cells in them to inject error into the signaling uh. because that increases the information bearing load of the system. Because right. because the the variation can then be used for something. So stuff like that just real. I'm like that. Yeah. I was like, seriously, neurons are foraging for information. Basically, like really, that's really how it works. <laughs> so I think things like that are very cool. And um, but I think when you marry that with a real respect for 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 evidence, <laughs> like I, I I will change my mind about something. If the evidence is really strong, you know, yeah. strong, even if it violates my own I intuition right. or whatever, I don't yeah. have any problem with that. And I think that's maybe where other people get into yeah. a little bit of problem because yeah. they, they they get stuck on them. Yeah, it, yeah, that's fun too, right? It's fun. It's fun <laughs> to prove yourself wrong, <laughs> including yourself, like everybody and yourself. Um, it's it's always because that's the learning. I I am fascinated though by that idea that that everything is is about you know we throw we we throw ideas out there and if they're reinforced they stick and if they don't and and it it's it there's so many ways to take that in terms of just trying to tell people to fail and fail often it's that yeah same idea yeah yeah i think that's right well robin uh that sort of touches on something I was thinking about. We we recently had a, a great conversation with Blaze Aguera Iarcas, who's a a VP at Google and works with AI, and he he was one of the authors on the original Lambda paper. And he talks a lot about this idea of like communal intelligence. Uh, he, yeah. He's, he spoke to us about islanding the idea that small populations, you know, that are isolated from larger society, their innovation rate plummets. Mm -hmm. And so we were actually talking about this yesterday that. What is there out there to support this idea of sort of a communal collective intelligence? I know in your book you describe that so much of brain development is done through social interaction, but I wonder if there are measurable relationships within uh, societies or communities uh, where brain activity is sort of feeding off one another. We, we kind of had this wild idea that if, if you were able to assemble a, a group of people and kind of monitor all their brain waves and watch them through these different interactions. And then somehow, I guess you'd have to apply AI to like algorithms to start searching for patterns and you could develop some deeper understanding of how these different brains are, are, are working in that environment, that that in, a, in and of itself might represent like AGI or some crazy form of intelligence. Um, so we, we were wondering if, yeah, if there's science yeah, to kind of so back some I of that guess, up. Um, yeah. So, uh, I, I would say, and this is not my area of expertise, but I have a couple of thoughts. One is that um, 
I think there's already evidence that brains synchronize with each other. So there's certainly evidence that other other signals, humans synchronize their signals. They synchronize over the short term. So for example, if you and I were, if we were actually in person, the three of us, and we were having coffee, for example, and even though we don't know each other very well, if we liked each other and we trusted each other, we would, our breathing rates would synchronize or they'd come closer and probably our heart rates because breathing is how you, yeah. it's really the only way you can like hijack your heart really I've actually directly seen this, and try to control it. I've actually um, seen a study where we harmonize as well. Yeah, exactly. Large groups of people, it happens with two um, sometimes. And also there's also what's called mirroring of behavior where, you know, you scratch your chin and I'll scratch my cheek and somebody else will scratch their head. And, you know, like, so there's, there are these subtle ways in which we coordinate our signals with each other. Mothers and infants do it. It's probably true with fathers too, although I don't know that anybody's, I don't know that, I don't know, I don't, I can't think of a study, but probably somebody's looked at it. Um, it, it, it happens um, even between therapists and patients. It, it's, it's kind of ubiquitous. Um, that being said, I think um, it's hard, you know, it's hard. People haven't really taken that to the next level, which I think, Josh, is what you were suggesting. So, um, so if you, um, there, and actually there is evidence that when people are watching the same movie, they're, they, you know, their, their neural patterns synchronized to some extent. But whether that allows someone else to become, um, you know, take some of the information bearing load from you or allow, or the two of you, you know, two people can be, do more than the sum of their parts. I don't think empirically that's, that there's evidence for that yet, but I don't see why there couldn't be. And I'll just say in my life, my in the context of discovery, I'll say that's how I live my entire career. The co-director of the lab that I, that we both direct the lab, she's a physiologist and I'm a neuroscientist. And we sometimes joke that like together we're a whole person. You know, <laughs> I, I, when I wanna know something about how the brain is managing the body, there are some things about the body that I don't necessarily know that she knows really quite well. And we've been able to discover things together that we would not have discovered if, you know, alone. And in fact, I was just talking to somebody last night where I was, I was saying, I didn't know the word islanding, but I said, you know, like somebody was asking me like, why, how is it that you're so creative that, you know, and I, I don't think I'm more creative inherently than other people. I just think I read broadly. And I, and I, a lot of what I'm doing is I'm learning things from other fields and then I'm asking how that helps. Um, you know, so learning about dynamical systems, learning about state spaces, um, you know, in engineering turned out to be like really formative for me. It, it changed a whole bunch of, you know, views that I had based on a new set of concepts that I had from this field that I didn't um, completely know, you know? And so I don't know how much, you know, I, I think that the, the kind of the great man theory of, of science, you know, and innovation, like, oh, you have this person who's really creative or you have this person who's really innovative. I don't actually think that's 
exactly right. What I would say maybe is that it, it's about being able to um, to import knowledge in, from other people and, and use it. And so right. I think maybe those things are related. Like you're more likely to learn from someone, copy them, um, use their their ideas if you trust them. If you so, my guess is it wouldn't be about how much brain signaling there is, but about the certain types of synchrony um, right. or the flow of information or something like that. If you could quantify that in some right. way, like some actionable yeah. way, that's kind of where we went. Was like, is is the study right now sort of out of context? Like as we as as you look at the tools to study brain activity, etc. Is it out of context because you, you're not able to study Completely. it? as it's happening within within the communities that we all live in and so and and how would you measure it and factor in context how like would oh. you put brain scans on 10 people and then just yeah like you would <laughs> synchronize yeah, so, it yeah so what you would do i mean we tried to do this a really long time ago with something called optical imaging so there was these ambulatory optical imagers you could they're sort of like um souped up eeg caps okay and you had to like, at the time, it was like 10 years ago, you had to wear like a computer on your back. <laughs> <laughs> and um, we had people walking around with these things. We do, you know, in the world, uh, sampling of physiological signals, for example. Um, and um, I actually think that's how all research should be done. It should be done out in the world where you are capturing complexity and modeling it for, you know, trying to understand what its structure is and model it. That's my... Uh, my view at this point so i do think i mean i heard a rumor that there's um ambulatory meg which is a little bit like fmri but not not exactly but you okay. know people walking around with big like you know, <laughs> big equipment on their head i think that's probably how things will will go um eventually yeah and that i guess that'll be interesting to to start studying within like there's I guess there's just so much still to learn right I mean <laughs> oh well I think mostly I mean in my field I think mostly people are still asking the wrong questions frankly so yeah I think there's still a lot to learn yeah sorry well, Josh I think in, you had something there uh, oh well I I was gonna say that that you mentioned like the kind of lone innovator idea and that was something that that Blaze brought up as well that like if you look uh, historically, I think, you know, Edison's credited with the light bulb, but around that same time, there were like 12 instances of relatively the same thing being invented because of the availability of certain technologies mm -hmm. and how there's sort that was kind of another indicator of collective intelligence where if like the same resources are widely available, then people are going to come up with certain things. Uh, so th there was that point. But then I, I think I was also thinking about how in, in reading your book, Lisa, uh, it struck me. I guess I'm always struck by like how similar some of these AI systems really are to say systems in nature and especially the human brain. Uh, you were talking about like children's developing brains. If they're, for instance, like only exposed to white faces when they see faces of different, different ethnicities, they have trouble distinguishing characteristics. Uh, and I've been reading uh, Joy Bulawami's book on masking AI and she, she was trying to create facial recognition uh or she was using facial recognition models to try and create yep. software, and it was failing to recognize her features. She's yep. uh, of Ghana descent and has yep, yep. dark I, complexion. I, I, so. I met her. Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So she was yeah. wearing like a white mask to do it. But like, uh, it, it feels like we're in this sort of weird toddling phase with 
these systems. And I wonder if there are things about brain development that we should be thinking about as we're sort of forging ahead, accidentally recreating <laughs> a version of it. Yeah, I absolutely agree with you. I think the problem I would see there, though, Josh, is that I think even when people, you know, a brain, a, an, a, an infant brain is is not a miniature adult brain. It's it's getting wiring instructions from the world. Some of those wiring instructions come from the, the infant's own body, um, but a lot of them come from uh, how we talk and interact and with that infant. And what we're doing is we're we're imparting um, um, cultural knowledge, basically. So this is how cultural inheritance happens. It's considered epigenetic evolution in the sense that um, it's not, you know, it's an information transfer across generations that's not based on genes. It's based on you know, the genes make possible certain types of learning by experience. But the thing is that most people, when they're socializing, that would be the word that we would use, right? They're socializing a child. They don't think that what they're doing is wiring that kid's brain, right? So that's a pretty sophisticated idea. And um, So I don't know that, I think you'd have to know that before you would be worried that you'd be doing the same thing with AI. But that is what is happening with AI. So, you know, I just gave, I've been for years now, I've been giving a series of talks on emotion recognition systems. And, you know, pe what people are doing with these systems, well, they're conflating, like, detecting a movement yes. on the face with the inference, the inferential meaning of the movement. But... But even more than that, they're, they're, you know, they're basically enshrining stereotypes in code by how right. they train the systems. And, um, you know, but it is, it's what you said. It's the same principle, really. It's exactly the same mm -hmm. principle. Um, it, yeah, we, we've, we talk a lot about that with, like, there's a lot of folks that try to sell systems for, um, you know, recognizing emotion through words um and as you know this idea that you sentiment analysis using ai and it's in in our experience wrong so often that it's useless mm -hmm. um um you know people use words mm -hmm. and and the, each person's meaning behind those words is different and culturally blah 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 um i'm sure that's kind of what you're talking about is yeah exactly it's just that in with facial movements people i mean people believe that they read facial movements you know, nobody reads <laughs> but movements are not a language to be read like words right. on a page you know and um people i mean so the best research shows that you know in western countries people scowl 35 percent of the time when they're angry which is more than chance. So get you like, you know, publication in the proceedings of the National Academy. But right. that means 65% of the time you're doing something else that's meaningful with your face when you're angry, which means, right. you know, you'll miss more than half of the times. And also people, the specificity is low. So people scowl when they're not angry, you know, like right. at least half, the, half at least 50% of the time um, when people are scowling, they're not, they're not angry. So, yeah. um, you know, they're, they're, they're concentrating really hard or someone told them a bad joke or they have bad gas right. or, you know, whatever. Right. <laughs> um, and so it's concerning um, 
Yeah, and it's and, funny because like not angry or angry, if you guessed, you know, without any data whatsoever, you'd probably be able to get numbers similar to that. <laughs> yeah, and in real life, we we you know we correct pretty pretty quickly. I mean, like we're that's what we're constantly nudging each other in conversation right. um, when there's a misunderstanding, but. If you believe, again, just to get back to your point, you know, if you believe in the credibility, if you have confidence in technology to tell you the truth about something, um, then you're, you know, you're shit out of luck. Basically. <laughs> yeah, that's a tall order. <laughs> it is yeah. a tall order. Yeah. Well, on that note, this was yeah fantastic conversation. Um, I enjoyed it. I, I don't even think we barely touched our list of things we wanted to ask you, but um, at least we well, got the top it ones. me back. You for know? sure, we would love yeah, to. This was like totally yeah. fun. I really enjoyed this. So thank awesome. you so much. Uh, that's great. Thank you, Lisa. Appreciate okay. it. All right. All right. Well, thanks again for joining this ongoing conversation about conversational AI. Be sure to subscribe to Invisible Machines wherever you get your podcasts, and if you feel so inclined, please leave us a review on the Apple Podcast app. You can also watch these conversations on the Invisible Machines YouTube channel. This podcast is produced for UX Magazine in partnership with OneReach.ai. Over the past five years, our team of nearly 200 engineers, scientists, experienced designers, anthropologists, and linguists have been developing Generative Studio X, an award-winning platform that has the lone distinction of being named a leader by every major analyst group. GSX is a complete environment for hosting, creating, analyzing, and scaling your own digital teammates called Intelligent Digital Workers. For an interactive demo of IDWs in action and to learn more about the GSX platform, head to OneReach.ai. This podcast would not be possible without the hard work and dedication of executive producer Elias Parker and producer Kate Timchenko. Our video and audio editor is Michael Litvinov, and we rely on support from the marketing team at OneReach.ai, including Allison Harshberger, Anastasia Nechtalio, and Vera Prokodko. Thanks again, and we look forward to connecting with you next week right here on Invisible Machines.